Would you pray with me? Father, it is, it is so good to have a God who is mighty to save. And all the messes we've tangled ourselves up in this week, all the things that loom ahead of us in the next, um, we want to trust and cast those cares on you because you care about us and you are mighty to save. And may your word this morning as it's proclaimed strengthen us in that task. May we safeguard our souls against the foolishness of turning away from you. So come and uh, send your spirit by your word now to do great things, we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, our goal as a congregation this year is to learn how to seek God more wholeheartedly than we ever have before We believe that that's where our greatest joy lies. We believe that's what we're made for, that that's why Christ died for us, uh, that we might seek after God and honor him with every shred of our lives. And in order to help us with that, we've been looking at the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel as the exemplary God-seeker, a man after God's own heart. Last week we saw, however, David had a bad day. And in chapter 27, he failed to consult God, and there were all these kind of consequences that came out of that. And just by way of encouragement to you, he's back on track today in chapter 29. If you want to open up your Bibles there, we'll, we'll pick up with his life there. I trust that today will be a great challenge and an encouragement to you as you seek to follow God with all your heart. I want to read a couple verses from chapter 28 that we also talked about last week to set the stage. It says, in those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish, who was a Philistine ruler, said to David, You, David, must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the Philistine army. David said, Then you will see what your, for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well. I will make you, David, my bodyguard for life. Now in chapter 29, the Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel, and as the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, what about these Hebrews? You have to understand, they're going into battle, they've got Hebrews in front of them, and they look around, and there are Hebrews behind them. This is not a comforting situation for them. So they turn to Achish and they say, what about these Hebrews? And he replies, oh, oh this, this is David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel. That's their adversary. They're going to attack Saul. He has already been with me over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. David has Achish completely snowed at this point. He's been deceiving him for a year. Achish has no clue. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him and said, Send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he'll turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his masters, that's Saul's, favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. 
Now, by seeking refuge with the enemies of Israel, David has sought refuge with the Philistines. He's been pressed to go into battle against his own people. Puts him in a bit of a tricky spot. But the Philistine commanders are nervous about this. They got Philistines they're fighting and they got Philistines, or they got Hebrews they're fighting and they got Hebrews guarding their rear. Something's not right with this picture, especially since the guy guarding the rear is the guy that they sang about killing their, his ten thousands. That was the song they sang after David killed Goliath and led a rout against the Philistines. Guess who the ten thousands were? Philistines, they're saying, Achish, hello, you're putting the guy who slaughtered us to protect our backside. I don't think so. And so Achish relents and he discharges David, calls David to him and he says, as surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you, so turn back, go in peace, do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of the Lord my king? Achish answered, I know you've been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel where they were to engage Israel in battle. Now we are not told in the account what to make of these cryptic statements that David makes. Like, you, can, you will see what your servant can do. What does that mean? Or when he says, why can't I fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? What king? What enemies? He is, he's veiling his words here. We really don't know. But I'm imagining that the Philistine commanders are right. And David would, in fact, turn on them. And Achish here is fully deceived by David. He has no idea. And it, it makes you realize how extraordinarily shrewd David must be, having led the Hebrews in battle against the Philistines, conquered 10,000 of them, according to the songs, that now he's even allowed to live with them, and he's got one of them wanting to march, let him march into battle at the back of their ranks. But at any rate, David returns to his home, Back in Philistine territory. Chapter 30, verse 1, David and his men reached Ziklag, his, his home base at this point in time, on the third day. And the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, David's city. They attacked Ziklag, they burned it, and they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went their way. Now, it's possible that what's happening here is a consequence of David's deception he's been living the last year. He's been doing these covert raids behind Achish's back, and one of the people that he raided were the Amalekites. And now the Amalekites come and raid David. It comes back on his own family now. Just, just an aside, 
to act without consulting God first, which is what David did during this time when he was living with the Philistines, doesn't just affect you. Your folly will affect those you love and care about most. But anyway, verse 3. David and his men came to Ziklag, and they found it destroyed by fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. And David now finds himself in the worst of situations. His wives kidnapped his town pillaged and burned, and his own men now are mutinying. They're talking of stoning him to death. It reminds us somewhat of the situation in terms of despair that Saul found himself in the last chapter, where Saul was facing the Philistines and he's terrified. David is in a similar place of despair and terror here. And the writer is purposefully putting these stories next to each other as a contrast. See, in chapter 28, Saul is in a place of great distress and he seeks help through essentially a psychic. In this chapter, some scholars think the chronology here has been changed around such that they're actually doing these actions on the same day as Saul is seeking a psychic. As we'll see, David is now seeking God in his point and place of great suffering. David, however, found strength in the Lord, his God. In suffering, David seeks God. Notice, David is the anointed king chosen by God to rule his people. He still suffers. God followers do not get an exemption from suffering. But he does find strength in God. When his heart is heavy, he despairs of life itself. David finds strength in God. This is in his writings. David wrote in Psalm 18, it's for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This is from this era of David's life. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I love you, O Lord, my strength. In a time of despair, David seeks strength in God. When you're discouraged at the end of a really bad day, where do you seek strength and refuge? Tragically, there are tens of millions of Americans who seek it in alcohol and a whole other boatload of people who seek it in over-medication or abuse of their medications. Still others come home and just flip on the TV or get engaged in a video game. There are even people who seek it, seek refuge and strength in food. We call it comfort foods. 
There's a study that's been done at the University of Illinois Food and Brand Lab, and they found out that the number one comfort food by 23% of North Americans was potato chips. Pop open a bag and eat it entirely. Potato chips, followed by things like ice cream, cookies, chocolate, pizza, pasta, steak, burgers, casseroles, and even soup. But what is most troubling about their results is that 7% of respondents, well, 7% said they ate soup, 4% for comfort food sought comfort in vegetables, and 3% in salad. We can't even get our comfort foods right in America. Friends, if you're seeking strength and refuge for your soul in vegetables, I'm concerned for you. Okay? At least get some Ben and Jerry's. My gosh, if you're going to. But all of these things, vegetables, ice cream, potato chips, alcohol, they all have one significant thing in common. They don't work. They don't strengthen our souls. When was the last time your salad nurtured your soul? Or a big bowl of ice cream just coupled with your favorite 30-minute sitcom really fueled you up to go and deal with the children? You know, it doesn't happen. It can numb our souls But only God strengthens us. Only God brings strength to troubled souls. Listen to David again, Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I'm helped. My heart leaps for joy and I'll give thanks to him in song. The Lord is the strength of his people. A fortress of salvation for his anointed one. How how do you seek strength in God? What does that look like? There's a verse in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, that I think is absolutely profound for us. It's in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then it says this word of indictment to the Israelites in that day, but you would have none of it. My fear is that the same word of indictment could be spoken to us. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. We are weak in part because we are so horrifically busy We are a non-reflective people. We don't seek solace in God himself alone. We just numb it with more activities, more busyness, more electronics, more media. But our strength is found in God. When you are despairing, Get alone with God and turn your focus from you to Him. Um, you know, I, 
I talk with people. It's part of my privilege as a pastor. I get to talk with people who are wrestling, struggling at points of despair in their life or things that are just not right. And so one of the questions that I ask people is, uh, have you prayed about it? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I, prayed about, I pray about it in the car every day when I drive to work. You know, I'm all about praying in the car, friends, but that's hardly um, a place of quietness and trust is in traffic on your way to work. Okay? Pray in your car. But if you're going to earnestly seek God, then you have to set aside time and place to seek God alone. Not as a hobby while you watch some TV and read your Bible or commute to work and read your Bible. Do those things. But if your soul needs strength, then you've got to slow down and stop and seek God. If you don't, your soul will be weak and you'll be vulnerable. Psalm 119 gives us another clue. My soul is weary with sorrow. Psalmist says, so strengthen me according to your word. That when, when we are discouraged and despairing, that we ought to be scouring the word of God for these hope-giving, life-giving promises that we can cling to, for these beautiful, comforting insights into the character of God that will sustain us. Isaiah says in chapter 40, God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word of God brings hope and that strengthens us on the inside. David, it's fascinating at this point in time to me that at this point in our story, he has not sought God's direction yet. First, before guidance, he seeks God himself and he's strengthened by God. He'll seek guidance. But after he seeks to be strengthened in God himself, David is first seeking God. Pick up in verse 6. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then, then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, God answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David seeks strength from God first and then guidance. This is his pattern. He says it in Psalm 31. Since you are my rock and my fortress, God, since I've already sought you as my rock and fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Seek God, then his will. David will not undertake this task without the guidance of God. And so he uses this ephod again, a priestly tool for discerning the will of God. And yes, you can buy one for $24.95 on the internet, plus shipping, and no, it will not work. Okay. Um, it was, unless you happen to be a high priest of Israel, and then perhaps it might work for you. But for us, for followers of Jesus the Christ, um, God speaks to us and directs us through the ministry of the Spirit in prayer and in the Word. Do you know how hard it is 
for someone seeking God to miss the will of God? Personally, I think it's almost impossible. If you are seeking God for you not to find the will of God, I think it's almost impossible. I meet people all the time, they're all in angst about the will of God. If you're seeking God, God is your guide. He's not playing cosmic hide-and-seek and wondering if you're going to look under the right seat cushion to find His will. The Bible speaks of God as our guide. I love this verse in Psalm 48. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. God is your guide. He's not going to lead you astray. He's not hiding from you. If you will seek Him, He says, you'll find Him. James, beautiful promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who loves to give generously to all who ask. It's extremely difficult for a follower of Jesus Christ to miss the will of God because God is so eager to direct our steps. But the question is, are you eager to seek his guidance? Are you fearful to step out without having prayed and sought God first? David, David would not step out here without consulting God first. I mean, think with me about your last significant response when somebody wronged you. When somebody did you wrong, they, they talked about you, they mistreated you, they overlooked you, they uh, robbed you, whatever, whatever happened. Did you seek God before you reacted? Yeah, I was talking to a guy the other day, and he's laying out for me an elaborate plan, a very detailed plan of what in his mind was righteous um, vengeance. Somebody did him wrong in his mind, and he had a pretty good plan to do wrong back. And so I asked him, have you prayed about it? This guy had a whole get-even plan developed and hadn't prayed a lick about it. Imagine the trouble that it would save us if we'd pray and ask God first. Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you pray, should I go after him, Lord? Look at the tickets that would be saved. I'm out uh, riding my bike out in the country um, near our home, or actually up, up in the Franklinton area, which is where I ride oftentimes. And there are no shoulders on those country roads, so it's a little bit risky, you know. But people are so gracious. Most all the drivers are so gracious. They go where on the other side of the road, you know, pull it behind you and honk, scare you to death kind of thing. Don't honk at a bike rider. Just go around them, okay? So anyway, they, they do that all the time. Except for the other day I'm riding, I'm cranking up this hill, and uh, a guy comes past me and intentionally sees, no other cars on the road, intentionally sees how close he can get to me. I feel the wind of his mirror go past me. Um, Brown Astro van. I remember it well. Um, He's probably going 50 mile an hour. And I'm out there. Do you have any idea how hard it is to come up with a feasible uh, strategy for revenge on a bicycle? You know, but I'm doing it, right? I'm pedaling up the hill. I'm speeding up. I'm thinking, I'm going to catch this guy. There's a stop sign about three miles ahead. And then I start thinking, maybe, 
Maybe he'll have a flat tire and I'll just pull up next to him. Um, and then, I, you know, I, obviously I have a little time to reflect before I catch him. So, um, so I start praying. And things start coming to mind about what Jesus said about enemies and what the New Testament teaches about people who mistreat you and what you do for people who curse you. And, uh, and my prayers changed. I prayed that somebody else would come by when he had a flat tire and smite him. <laughs> no, I, you know, it changed. I began to pray about, about forgiving them and about God blessing my enemies, those who would imperil my life um, for a thrill. But the last time you were wrong, did you pray? David will not move, though he has been grievously wronged, until he has consulted God. As a result of being strengthened by God and then receiving guidance from God, he's now able to lead his men as they so need him to in obedience to God. And that's where we pick the story up again in verse 9 of chapter 30. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Ravine. They're now in pursuit of the Amalekites, where some stayed behind, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit, and they found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days, And three nights, and David asked him, To whom do you belong, and where do you come from? And he said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerithites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned the Ziklag. And David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? And he answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. And he led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered Everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder, or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. So God sends David on a mission to rescue his family. And God says that he'll be with him. And guess what? God's right and he wins. Okay? That's how things work. God is right and he wins. You can't tell that when you come upon the burned camp and you see the family's gone. You don't know then. You're confused. But that's the way it always works out. That's the way it always will. God is always right. His ways are always best. He always wins. And there will come a day when God will right every wrong. And we are to trust him in that. So at this point, everybody's happy. And everybody's celebrating. Everything is fine until they come to the 200 who dropped out of the pursuit. 
David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Bessor Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. And as David and his men approached, David greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, being kind and gracious men, each man may take his wife and children and go. This is absolutely um, amazing here. You have to realize that David's men are not the nation's finest. Remember, they are malcontents. They are described here as evil men and troublemakers. And that David could lead this band at all speaks volumes of his amazing, amazing leadership. But here they are simply greedy, selfish fools. They are greedy and selfish, obviously, and they are fools because they have forgotten God. They have forgotten that the victory came from God's hand. They've forgotten that God sovereignly provided the spoils. Did you notice they didn't just recover their own stuff, but they recovered all the spoils of the Amalekites from the other raids they'd done in at least three other regions? They got all that stuff by God's sovereign pleasure. They're fools because they have forgotten God and think now that they have done it on their own. But David restores perspective in verse 23. He says, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say if you do this? The share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down into the battle All will share alike. And David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. See, David acknowledges that the plunder is from God's hands, not theirs. It's not David's plunder. It's God's plunder. He also acknowledges here that this is for the betterment of the community, not just for the plunderer. It's not to be hoarded. In suffering, David seeks God. In victory, he remembers God. And as a result, he is very generous, very glad to be generous and to urge generosity upon his men. Not only to the 200 men who stayed the supplies, but numerous other leaders of cities as well. It says, when David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. And he sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, Jatir, to those in Aror, Sifmoth, Eshtemoah, and Rakal, to those in the towns of the Jeremielites and the Kenites, to those in Horma, Borashan, Athak, Hebron, and to those in all the other places where David and his men had roamed. They had enough plunder for those 200 men and over 13 cities' leaders to benefit from. And yet those 400 men wanted to hoard it all to themselves. This is the scary side of greed. You can have way more than you need. And you still want to hoard it. Unselfish generosity flows from remembering where the plunder comes from. It comes from God. It's really not about how much you have as whether you remember where you got it from. 
from God. Every year, Forbes magazine posts a list of the world's wealthiest people according to their most recent study. There are currently 946 billionaires in the world. Billionaires with a B. 946. Now, if you exclude Warren Buffett, who gave away $44 billion, billion with a B dollars last year, the other 945 billionaires donated 1.2% of their earnings to charity. Billionaire. 1.2%, 945 of them. By vivid contrast, Lee Strobel used to be a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was assigned to report on the struggles of an impoverished inner-city family during the weeks leading up to Christmas. He was a devout atheist at that time, and Strobel was mildly surprised by the family's attitude in spite of their circumstances. This is what he says. The Delgados... 60-year-old Perfecta and her granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, had been burned out of their roach-infested tenement and, we were living in a, and they were living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side. As I walked in, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned only one short-sleeved dress each plus one thin gray sweater between them. This is in Chicago, by the way. When they walked the half mile to school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for part of the distance and then hand it to her shivering sister who would wear it the rest of the way. But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced he had not abandoned them. He said, I never sensed despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. Well, Strobel completed his article, then moved on to more high-profile assignments. But when Christmas Eve arrived, he found his thoughts drifting back to the Delgados and their unflinching belief in God's providence. And in his words, he says, I continued to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here's a family that had nothing but faith and yet seemed happy. While I had everything I needed material but lacked faith, and inside I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. In the middle of a slow news day, Strobel decided to pay a visit to the Delgados. And when he arrived, he was amazed at what he saw. Readers of his article had responded to the family's need in overwhelming fashion, filling the small apartment with donations. Once inside, Strobel encountered new furniture, appliances, and rugs, a large Christmas tree and stacks of wrapped presents, bags of food, and a large selection of warm winter clothing. Readers had even donated a generous amount of cash. But it wasn't the gifts that shocked Lee Strobel, an atheist in the middle of Christmas generosity. It was the family's response to these gifts. He writes, As surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. He says, that blew me away. 
If I had been in their position at that time in my life, I would have been hoarding everything. I asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity of the people who had sent all these goodies, and again, her response amazed me. This is wonderful. This is very good. She said, gesturing towards all the gifts. We did nothing to deserve this. It's a gift from God, but, she added, it's not his greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, Strobel says, this child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything. More than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And at that moment, something inside of me, as an atheist, wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because in a sense, I saw him in Perfecta and her granddaughters. In suffering, David seeks God. And in victory, he remembers God and is wildly generous. And in these ways, he's the ideal king, seeking, remembering, honoring God like the greatest king who would come after him. Jesus, the Christ, who suffered and in the garden sought God with tears and obeyed the hard guidance that he received to go to Jerusalem and to die there on the cross for your sins and for mine. And so today the challenge is really very simple. It's to follow David as he anticipates Christ. To seek God in suffering and to remember God in victory. Would you bow with me in prayer? as the worship team comes to lead us in our closing response of worship.